0: You know, when she would call me, it wouldn't be because she just won some ribbon. She would call me and say, oh, you won't believe what I just figured out. <laughs> she had a lot of very difficult horses when she started as a professional. And she was so clever about trying different things, whether it was just working something on a hill, riding the horse in the field, putting a hackamore on it, galloping it, getting up off its back. You know, she, she was always thinking and analyzing and trying to figure out how she could help the horse so that's part of it with the riding and the other part of it is knowing about horses on the ground and i think we're losing more and more people who are not educating themselves in stable management horse care how horses think how horses react
1: there is a depth and a breadth to our lives that largely goes unexplored As an equestrian life mindset coach and host of this podcast, I am here to lead you on that exploration. Deep conversations covering topics in and out of the show ring with industry leaders and unsung heroes alike sharing their stories and what makes their journey unique but relatable at the same time. We all have stories to share and lessons to trade, something we've learned from a horse or from each other. So relax and be ready to listen with more than just your ears. I'm Tracy Mitchell. Welcome to Hitting Your Stride. When one of your hallmark achievements is a quarter century old and still going strong, but your humility prevents you from taking too much of the credit, you'll begin to understand what makes Lendon Grey the person and the equestrian she is. Having the honour of speaking with Lendon for this episode, I got a real sense of the purposefulness she conducts herself with while taking in only a small fraction of the scope of her vision for the sport of dressage. Talking about dressage for kids was only one of many jumping off points for us. Lendon shares her thoughts on having fun with the horse and letting it have fun, her Olympic experiences, and how much she hates being told something twice. We then delved into things like mental preparation, setting goals, and the differences between what makes a rider great or just good. The story she has to share showcases her humble nature and how she aims to build good people who happen to excel at equestrian sports. Her down-to-earth nature comes out in the way she talks about how what you do confirms a habit and how she's taking this time in her life to give back to a sport that has given so much to her. I'm really excited to share this episode with all of you. As London's generous spirit and knowledge combine to provide an enriching conversation, I think we can all take something away from. With that, let's get this going. Lendon Gray, welcome to Hitting Your Stride. Well, welcome, Lendon Gray. Thank you so much for being here with me on your Thanksgiving holiday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- for joining me on Hitting Your Stride. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Awesome. All right, Lyndon, let's get things started. Among the many things you are known for is your, one of the many things that you are known for is your generosity with your time and a willingness to pass along what you've learned. Where does that come from in you? And do you think it is a trait that is not in large enough supply in today's equestrian world?
0: Well, a couple of thoughts there. One is my parents My mother, who was a rider, my father, who didn't want to know about our horses for a couple of decades before he got into it, were incredibly generous people. Uh, My mother did a great deal getting equine activities going in the state of Maine, where I grew up. My father was the sort of person that would give you the shirt off his back. So perhaps some of it is inherited. um, And... As I, certainly when I was riding and competing and competing seriously, a little more of my efforts went into what I was doing, learning and um, developing myself. But even then, I, I enjoyed helping others to see what I was doing. I think one thing about myself, I wasn't a really dedicated, dedicated competitor which may be one reason why I was quite successful competitively because I didn't get so wrapped up in it. I love to ride. I love to train. I love to take any horse of any kind and make it better. And so I worked with all kinds of different people because I worked with all kinds of different horses. And then as I got a little older and I really didn't want to keep compete anymore, it was very easy for me to, share my horses and get my clients to share their horses with the working students. I would have oh between five and eight working students at a time. Um, And that's how some of my students um, were able to ride some pretty special horses pretty early on. And then at some point I had to stop riding. And I have to say, I don't really miss it because that energy has been filled up with now teaching and um, massage for Kids, which is taking up most of my time now. Yeah. Um, and, And I think we all have a responsibility at some point to share what we've learned, what we've taken from whatever sport we're in, whatever activity we're in, Where else are the young people going to learn? Where else are uh, those who aren't able to dedicate their lives full-time to it? They have to learn somewhere. So I think it's up to us in one way or another to share.
1: Do you witness a lot of people in your world where or in the sport that are kind of keeping their cards close to their chest and maybe they are at that point where they could be more open and paying it
0: forward? There are definitely some of those people, but I find as I travel around, a lot of generosity. Now, if you're competing seriously, and and even more nowadays than when I was doing it, you know, I was competing internationally in the, I started in 1978, my last, the World Cup I rode in 1991, so that was a long time ago, but you've got to be pretty Focused if you're riding at that level. So are you going to be a little selfish? Probably. Um, But as we work out of that, I think you're seeing a lot of our international riders, dressage, I can only speak for the dressage world right now. Yeah. They really are very generous. I mean, I'm able to uh, talk to the kids that I work with we go and watch some of the top people train. We watch some of the top people tre- uh, teach, and I am very, very seldom turned down um, to to come and 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 help out uh, for these people to come and help out a little bit. Or we go to them and they help. Now we're not asking for a lot of their time, but I do find a lot of of uh, generosity. Nice.
1: That's good. Yeah. And the whole aspect of paying it forward. And it's funny, I just finished reading a book by Arthur Brooks, it's called Strength to Strength. And it's it's looking about looking at happiness in the quote, unquote, it was hard to read this part, the second half of life. (laughs) And (laughs) um, it talked about um, fluid intelligence in your active younger days and then, then he refers to it as crystallized intelligence as you've ah. you know you move through life and and using your wisdom and sharing it and everything. So yes that's uh what you were saying there reminded me of that and I do I agree with you it should be considered a responsibility.
0: I hope mine isn't too crystallized because I'm still learning and can I tell you how often I learn from the kids that I I'm teaching. Yes, Um, please. Yes. So let's keep some fluidity in it.
1: Well, that's awesome. (laughs) And I just had Margie Engel on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. And yes, I mean, she herself admitted that she's a constant learner, still loves to learn. So there's got to be a a correlation there, (laughs) Lyndon.
0: Isn't that what's so wonderful about this sport is every student is different as we teach. And certainly every horse is different. Yes. And it never gets boring.
1: That's awesome. Okay, so you have an incredibly well-rounded base in many equestrian sports, having ridden Western, Hunt Seat, Bareback, and more in your youth, before you found and dedicated yourself to dressage. What is it about the discipline of dressage that was the attraction for you? And how did your foundation in other riding styles help you?
0: Well, I wish I could tell you a story Story about how dressage just you know i fell madly in love with it i was an event rider a pony clubber and as you say as a kid i rode western hunt seat we jumped we did mock fox hunts we did all kinds of crazy things um and but i through pony club i became serious about eventing i was invited to train with our olympic team back then i was certainly no olympic level event rider and then when I graduated college, I got a job in Alabama with someone breaking her young horses. She raised sport thoroughbreds and Connemara thoroughbred crosses. And I started them in the eventing direction. And um, we had one mayor a thoroughbred mayor that won everything as a, what would have been like novice nowadays, her first year of eventing. And the next year when I came back, I would go home for, for a, uh, the summers and I was in Alabama in the winters. And uh, when I came back that next year, Mrs. Whitehurst said, well, I don't really want her to keep eventing. She was a very delicate mare. She said, do you want to do the hunters or do you want to do dressage? (laughs) Well, all I knew was I didn't want to do the hunters. (laughs) So I said, let's do the dressage. And by chance or luck or possibly a small amount of talent, we won a national championship that year, the equivalent of now third level, second, third level. Wow. And I decided, well, golly gee, (laughs) maybe I should learn more about this because I was pretty much self taught, you know, with clinics and, you know, I didn't, I never had a regular instructor. So I bought an old 18 year old, uh, FEI horse and uh, intermediate horse and learned on him. Wow. Um, and then I started getting getting some instruction. so looking back, I certainly had because I pretty much always won at the events uh, one way or another and uh, so and definitely did not have a natural aptitude for the jumping, so mm-hmm. it sort of came to me, okay, and also, when I was in college, I went to Sweetwater College in Virginia which has an amazing riding program, but solid hunters and very, very solid hunter program when I was there, very education oriented and definitely forward seat, kind of leave the horse alone. Um, And that had, even though it was very, very different from the dressage that I was doing, it had a profound effect on the dressage rider I became because of the emphasis on being able to leave the horse alone, being able to go with the horse 100% before you ask the horse to change his way of going at all. So all of these things sort of came through. And the other thing that concerns me very much nowadays, you know, we had horses in the backyard and we played with them and we did crazy, crazy things. (laughs) Uh, My older sister and I wouldn't, I could never let anybody do the things that we did. Um, But I learned so much about how horses think, how they react. I got an incredibly strong seat as in not being able to get bucked off from all of this. Lots of trail riding, lots of galloping around, lots of games and stuff. And I see nowadays with young people, particularly, you know, I can only speak really strongly about the dressage world young people starting so much younger to be serious about dressage which is wonderful on the one hand but i take these kids and i even in a dressage arena i say have a gallop down the long side and they do maybe a tiny bit more canter or i say go out in the field and let's work in the field and they look at me like i've been drinking (laughs) um and that concerns me a lot yes um that they're not getting this broad education, not just on the ground and stable management and all of that, but just in being on a horse and, and, and being gutsy and, and uh, uh, having fun with the horse. And I hope that we can continue to encourage that in our young people. Um, yes.
1: Yeah. And I, I know, well, like whether I'm at a barn massaging clients or if I'm at a horse show and there's so much of this in the younger generation where they're they're very tight in the saddle and they're they're they've got this clamp on the reins almost there they seem to like there's a lot of successful younger riders but i also like you described them there's this little sense of discomfort or or fear that's always there and you know as you were discussing as you were describing that i'm like oh my god that took me back to the very first time my riding coach her daughter after one of my lessons she said all right go take Tracy out. And so we were on a couple of ponies and she like, go gallop around the fields. Oh my goodness, yeah. London. It was so much fun. I was a little scared at first, but once yeah. you had that feeling of like, just, yeah. And it, it shows you a different side. And I, I liked the way, what was it? You you said it can be a little, a little braver.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. um, And just having fun with the horse and letting the horse have some fun it doesn't all have to be about discipline yes Um, I'm all for discipline but there's got to be some some joy and some freedom and so forth mixed in
1: yeah okay so on that note talk to me about your aim with programs like dressage for kids and the youth dressage festival and how you're hoping to level the playing field for all riders
0: well Massage for Kids, actually, we're in our 25th year this year. Wow. Um, and it started a little bit what we're talking about. Um, because of my background, particularly my background in Pony Club, um, I was seeing, and I was as guilty as anybody, we, as we were developing riders for the North American Championships when they became important, and uh, very often parents would buy a horse for their child and my job or the trainer's job was to teach that child to ride that horse in those tests and that was kind of it and i had boarders i i here where i live in new york now i had boarders who were offered full board and if they wanted they could come and pick up their horse that was handed to them and get on and ride and then hand the horse to the groom and leave if they wanted Not many did that, but I did have some and I had some kids whose parents wanted them to do it that way. And it was concerning me so much, the lack of stable management knowledge and this lack of really teaching the basics in many cases that I saw just to get, let's get them in the ring doing this test. Um, So I started Dressage for Kids and the first thing was the Youth Dressage Festival, which was which is still um, equal parts dressage test, where certainly the horse you have helps, you know, a good horse is going to yeah. help you. Then an equitation judging, where huh. hopefully the horse doesn't help you much. And if the judges can see, even if the horse is naughty or isn't so great in some areas, but you're doing it correctly, you'll be, be rewarded for that. And then where the horse doesn't matter at all is... Huh is the third phase, which is the written test. Every year it's assigned reading um, and all three phases are equal. So there we are trying the best we can to level the playing field. I mean, we are in a sport and dressage where the horse is judged, but um, let's try to make it where riding and knowledge is also important. And also talking about a little bit what we were a moment ago The festival also includes a dressage trail class, a pre Caprilli, which is a dressage test with jumps in it. Um, We're having a costume class this year. You know, things that are fun and uh, also give the kids who have the not so typical dressage horse, shall we say, or maybe not so much background in their riding a chance to, to shine um so that's how dressage for kids started and th- then we've expanded into a lot of areas and what takes up most of my time is what we call the team program team standing for training education and mentoring and i do clinics well not just me we have some other people also doing clinics around the country the clinics are for any rider we start usually not younger than well i've had some 7 year olds but and up to 25, the under 25 Grand Prix. And anyone that sort of is able to control their horse, at least walk trot, um, is welcome. There's no uh, requirement of level or competitive experience. Uh, We work very hard to get donations so we can keep the expenses way down for these kids mm-hmm. and they so they get a lesson every day, a private lesson, and there are also uh, two lectures each day on something that has to do with riding. It could be human nutrition, horse nutrition, just about anything sports psychology, fitness, et cetera. And they have handouts that are given to them for education and some written tests that they they have to do. Wow. And so that goes on most of the year. And then we do um, getting ready now for the winter intensive training program, which is about 14 kids for three months in Florida. I also do a one month one in the summer, which again has fitness, lessons, lectures, field trips, et cetera. Um, I can't say those two programs are cheap, but we do everything we can to keep the costs down um we also have because we're a 501c3 which means we can people can make donations for tax deductions we have had about 110 in the past 10 years 12 uh, actually a few more years than that um horses donated to us which we lease out for a very tiny fee Hmm. to kids and that's everything from you know the kid's pony to horses who have won the North American championships, national championships, one of one of the horses of the kid, the rider qualified to represent the U S and Europe. Um, so again, we've been able to give kids that would not be able to afford this quality horse, um, even though they have to, they have to uh, support the horse and they have to, be in a situation where they can retire the horse when the time comes. Uh, we've had some young riders that have just had amazing opportunities because of that. So, And the final thing we do real quick is a slightly newer program. It's been going on in a small way for quite a while is what we call training for teaching. Hmm. And that's our effort. You know, most of us that teach we teach because we were successful as competitors. Do we know anything about teaching? Absolutely not. We know how we were taught and we know how to ride. But what, do we know anything about how people learn and how to form a good lesson, et cetera? So um, that's been going on um, in an effort to help our kids by helping the teachers, which also helps the adult amateurs and everybody else.
1: Yeah. Wow and it's everything that you've just described to me sounds so groundbreaking. And yet you said it's been around for 25 years.
0: (laughs) Um, It's part of it as yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, the idea of writing tests is amazing. I think teaching the coaches is absolutely amazing. Now you must have a ton of youngsters signing up for this like do you go through an, an interview program
0: or how do you choose the uh team clinics the kids have to make an application we do everything we can you know these are all over the country um from hawaii to california to, uh, we've even done some in canada texas maine michigan all over wherever i mean we just if people want us to do it, they reach out to us and we do everything we can to make it happen. Um, And so they make application for for the team program Um, and the winter program and the summer program, what we call the intensive training programs. Yes, there's most, yeah, there's applications. They oftentimes talk to their trainers to see if they're gonna be suitable uh, sometimes I talk to them personally. So yes, there's an application process.
1: Okay. Wow. Very exciting. I mean, that's how I got the idea to, to chat with you was through Ali Dunlop and Mm -hmm. she said so many wonderful things, um, about you and that, uh, you know, how this program is just such a, a ground leveler for a lot of kids that, um, don't have the chance or the backing to, to do what they love. And yeah, I just think it's amazing.
0: Well, hopefully we've given some kids a good, a good start. And uh, often these clinics, they do two things. They, well, hopefully they learn a little something, but in many cases, they learn the effort, the discipline that it takes if they're really serious about it. I don't care if they're not. And I don't care if they just want to be the best training level rider out there. They don't have to have, you know, major aspir- aspiration. Right. And um, so that's, that's part of what they learn. What a lot of kids have no idea what it's like to be really focused and really determined and to give their all when they're on that horse wow and hopefully I let them know that oh my goodness
1: I I feel like the the word legacy keeps popping into my brain as you're talking and I'm just like wow this is you're doing such wonderful work that I'm sure in long time when you're no longer <laughs> with us, do, do you feel like it's gonna be in good hands? Like, is this something that you're setting up for generations down the road? Well,
0: I've thought about that over the past few years as I, um, and, and at first I thought, you know, when I was ready not to do it or I wrapped myself around a tree or something that it would probably stop, but that's not the case. Um, We have some of our programs that will easily move on, and we are in the midst now of trying to set up a sort of succession. The difficult part will be for the teaching part of someone who's willing to give enough time. Um, Not that, you know, I get paid. I don't get paid what I would if I were out there on my own, but um, it's not all giving up our time. Yeah, but anyway, uh, we are in the midst of working on that. Yes.
1: Okay. I don't plan
0: to retire right away, but who knows? Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Lendon, you arrived at the higher levels of competition early in your riding career, performing well in a number of events in the U.S. and Canada, as well as earning your A rating at just 16 years old. Talk to me about how you would prepare yourself mentally and physically for that kind of competition.
0: I love that question because what I tell kids nowadays and when I say kids I don't care if they're 70 years old what I tell <laughs> students um it's not how I did it I had you know it's all we we talk so much about making goals and they have to write down but before they come to the clinic they fill out what I call the long-term goals and uh both for themselves and their horse and it's couple pieces of paper that they hand me at the beginning of the clinic. And then after their lessons, they have to write down, they have a form to fill out on short-term goals from their lesson, you know, what they're thinking about that. Da, 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 da. I never did that. I basically lived day to day in my riding, um, pony club, you know, pony club gave you that direction of yeah. going from one level to another, to another. Um, I have to tell you, I failed my first B test um, because they felt I lacked maturity because I was having a water fight in the stable area. Uh They got caught throwing a bucket of water at another kid. (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. But then it it sort of moved more more smoothly after that. Um, You know, the ratings were just something you did. And we worked towards it. would I have been heartbroken if I failed? I don't think so, but it was what we did. I, We competed, we went to the National Pony Club rallies that they used to have then. Of course, it was all eventing back then. Um, um, it was kind of fun. I, I won the, as an A, I won the Canadian. I was second in the American that year to Kathy Connolly by I think one point, and I've never forgiven her. We talk about it a lot and laugh over it. Um, It was it was fun. Um, And then, as I say, I got into dressage by chance. I I got became an international dressage rider purely by chance. If I can very, very quickly tell you how I got into it. I was at a clinic in Alabama talking. We were having pizza the second day, the evening of the clinic between the first and second day, I was, we were talking about stuff and I was saying something about, you know, this is in 1977. Um, You know, we need, we Americans needed to believe in ourselves. Everything didn't have to be German, 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 which it was back then. In January, I got a phone call from someone who was at that clinic, whose brother had just died very unexpectedly. His brother was very proud of being American trained and he was on an American horse and uh the man that trained the horse and the brother said, would you like his horse? With the understanding that you try out for the world championships this year, that year, because that's what his brother was doing. Well, sure golly, why not? Wow. Um and to make a long story short, I got the horse the beginning of February. I went home to Mike Poolin in April. I was in Alabama. Uh put myself completely in his hands. He did miracles training me and i did my first grand prix i'd never seen a live grand prix at this point i did my first grand prix in may i did the trials in june and in july we were in europe uh competing you couldn't do that nowadays for sure but i my dream was not to go to the olympics my dream was, i just love to ride and as i say i love to train and you know that horse took me to the world championships and they we were on the 1980 olympic team um i bought another horse at one point because i thought it was really cute didn't expect <laughs> miracles from him um he took me to my second olympic team but throughout all of this i i didn't have the major goal to do it and my second olympic team We had two weekends of trials. We were, I was in the top 12. We were invited to these trials and I couldn't, it's, you know, we, you get your expenses paid when you go to the Olympics or something like that, when you compete for this country, but that doesn't pay your mortgage or, or your staff at home or, you know, your car payments or whatever. And I couldn't afford to go. I didn't think. Hmm. So I went to the first trials and said, I want to be seventh because the top six had to go into quarantine. Four would go to to Korea, but the top six had to go into quarantine. So seventh seemed good. I went, I was seventh. I was very happy. I went home between the two weekends and trail road, because basically my wonderful later on was his name. um, We had done basically the best we could do. And I went home and relaxed and he relaxed and everybody else stayed at Gladstone and trained and trained and trained and looked at each other and I think psyched each other out. And I made the team not because I did better the second time, but because other people did worse. (laughs) Um interesting. So the next thing I knew, I was in Seoul, Korea, competing (laughs) in the Olympics on my fat lips was his nickname. Um (laughs) because he had fat lips. Oh Um, but uh and that's kind of the way my competitive career has gone. Wow. And I think it's one, I was a heck of a good competitor. I could ride a test really well. And I, I had a discipline. I had a, you know, I was focused. Um, But also after my first few years, I didn't have a big nerves problem because I don't think the com- competition meant so much to me that my world was going to be shattered if I didn't win Mm. and I think that gets in the way of a lot of people they all they can think about is the competition yeah I looked at the competition as a way to have someone evaluate my work at home and if I won I loved it who doesn't love to win but if I didn't win it was did the did the judge does not appreciate my good work (laughs) or did the judge give me a a figurative smack on the head and say, Hey, listen, you got to go home and fix this. And that was more often the case. And I went home and tried to fix it. What a wonderful way to look at it. You know, like
1: I, you go and you just have fun. And I don't know this to me, what you're describing is something that, you know, I heard a long time ago when I was younger and riding, it's like, just go have fun. Yeah. And then, and and don't be afraid of the quote unquote critique. But like, and I think that's what I most enjoyed about riding dressage is yes, I'm competitive, but I just really wanted to go in and ride the best test I could to compare it to what I did last time. Um, exactly. Yeah. So like when you're working with the younger kids now, because it seemed like you had such a, a really perfect, for lack of a better word, balance in how you approach yourself and your horses in the sport. How much time do you spend with them on the mental side of preparation?
0: Well, in the winter program, we try to do, you know, when you're doing a a two-day clinic with 10 or 12 riders, um, uh, very often there is a lecture about sports psychology or whatever. But I think, I hope that, I try to get that across in my teaching. But also, you know, I had, I, I had a, Mike Poulin, with, who's the only person I trained with long term, other than a clinic here and there. Um, I remember him saying to people what a good student I was. And I thought that was because I won a lot. And it wasn't until I had been teaching an embarrassingly long time that I realized that everybody wasn't like me. And I take no credit for this. I'm not patting myself on the head. It's, I think it's my nature. Yeah. I hated to be told the same thing twice. Hmm. If he told me I had too much bend, the next time I didn't have enough bend. If he told me my right hand was too high, the next time he said to me, the next thing he said to me was my right hand was too low i was not going to let him say the same thing over and over again and that's what helped me to learn very quickly and i think it's a natural maybe it's obsessive compulsive i don't know (laughs) i don't want to think about it um you know my my desire to be the best that i could be not to win ribbons but because i guess maybe for the sake of my horses i didn't think of it in those terms but that was part of it and that's you know when I taught the kids get for these clinics there's a little half hour session before we actually start and one of the things I tell them well first of all I always ask them to raise a hand if they pay for everything that has to do with their horse and occasionally I have an older kid that is on their own but generally they you know mommy daddy somebody is paying for this ridiculously expensive sport yeah and i tell them that they owe that person big time to make sure in this case specifically that every lesson is a new lesson that you know they're making that kind of an effort um and part of that is is writing things down having a journal after every lesson hopefully after every ride, but at the very least, after every lesson, you should be writing little notes of the things that you want to remember, the things you want to think about, maybe a research you need to do or something in the horse you want to look into. Um, And I did this faithfully. And I know it had a huge impact on my success. And to me, if you're not making notes after every lesson, you're not making every penny that you're paying for that lesson worthwhile yeah that's my wow easiness
1: (laughs) yeah I could I could almost see you know like if if I were one of your students and I were making these journal notes I think I'd want to include you know like really special moments or those aha moments that I had in relationship to my horse with my horse absolutely yeah
0: The good, as well as the the things that go well, the things that don't, the things you need to think about. Yeah. Um, Okay. I think that's, that's, and after every competition as well, um, uh, notes, it's a proven fact that if you write it down, you're much, much more likely to remember it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's got to be pen to paper, not thumbs to your phone.
0: (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 That, that. Writing by hand will help you to remember better than typing. Yep. I find that very interesting. Yes.
1: All right, London. So what separates a good writer from a great one? And how do you make sure your students properly define the distinct, the distinction between them to help maybe properly manage their expectations? That's really tough.
0: Now you uh, talent, talent, plays a part. Um, For example, if I grew up wanting to be an opera singer, all I could think about was being an opera singer. I can tell you it never would have happened. No matter (laughs) how much somebody worked with me, I could not be a good singer. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure that there are people out there with a gift for singing. I definitely had for whatever reason, a bit of a gift about being a dressage rider. Um, part of it is feel um, that you can teach and you can learn, but there are those that have it naturally. Um, it's like seeing a distance and jumping. Okay. You know, I, I was terrible at that. Other people don't understand. It's easy. You just look. You know, <laughs> oh, of course that's the right distance. I don't know. It, that never came to me, but so part of the tricky, tricky part is helping those who physically don't have a talent to understand that there are those that are going to learn faster. I'm not saying they can't learn it, but there are those that are going to learn faster because it comes easier to them. Um, The other thing is, as I was saying a moment ago, how much effort are you willing to put into this? This is a really tough sport. Um, Fortunately, it's a sport you can be doing into your 80s and 90s, maybe not competing in your 90s, but we've had Olympians who have been in their 70s. Yeah. Uh, So it's not like you get old too soon. You know, you have to give it up because you get, you know, like a gymnast or Whatever. You get to a point where your body can't do it. So there's lots of time for you to learn. I find there's this desperation with a lot of the young kids. I've got to do it now. I've got to have a horse to go to North American Young Riders. I've got to whatever. Um, and I think if that is your reason for getting up in the morning, you're probably going to burn out. Um but the good rider versus the great rider, so part of it is an I think an innate talent. part of it is much of it is mental. um how um uh, how much you think about it, how much you analyze it. you know, we think of it so much as a physical sport, so but it that's not the case. so much of it is mental, yeah. Are you thinking about the horse? Are you analyzing the horse? Are you trying to understand the horse? Can you figure out why it's not working? Um, one of my favorite students, I've had a few that have competed internationally, even in Olympics. But one of my favorite students, when she went off, you know, after she left me and went off as a professional, um, would, you know, when she would call me, it wouldn't be because she just won some ribbon. She would call me and say, Oh, you won't believe what I just figured out. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of very difficult horses when she started as a professional and she was so clever about trying different things whether it was just working something on a hill riding the horse in the field putting a hackamore on it galloping it getting up off its back you know she she was always thinking and analyzing and trying to figure out how she could help the horse and um so that's part of it with the riding and the other part of it is Knowing about horses on the ground, and I think we're losing more and more people who are not educating themselves in stable management, horse care, how horses think, how horses react, um, Mm -hmm. working them from the ground, all of that. Where I've wandered all over everywhere with this, haven't I? Um, (laughs) No. And and you mentioned, I think, managing expectations. Yeah. Um, That's that I find difficult. Because you don't want to burst their bubble. You know, they don't have a horse that's of quality. And let's face it, to be competitive today, you have to have a good quality. To be competitive at a higher level, right. you have to have a good quality horse. To be competitive at a lower level, you have to have a nicely trained horse that's well ridden. There's lots of quote unquote non-traditional dressage horses out there doing well. Maybe you're not going to go to the Olympics. Probably not. Yeah. Um, on your your Norwegian fjord or whatever. Please don't say I don't like Norwegian fjords. <laughs> I love them. I think they're adorable, but they're not designed. I mean, they're horses that are designed for the sport. Let's face it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so I don't want to discourage anyone. But I do try to... Um, let them know the difficulties that are ahead of them. You know, they're six foot tall and they're riding a little Arabian mm-hmm. or they're five foot tall and riding a 17 freehand hand horse. That puts them at a disadvantage. They are having to do full-time school. Uh, that puts them at a disadvantage. It doesn't make it impossible. Their finances are limited. That definitely puts you at a disadvantage. But let's face it, there are people out there that have found a way to make it work. So how much are you willing to put into it to overcome the fact that you're competing against someone who is naturally gifted, who is financially able to buy a beautiful and beautifully trained horse, who has, is financially able to have top training and compete a good deal? um yeah you got to figure out how to make it work i mean if you live in northern north dakota and have to stay in northern north dakota yeah you're at a huge disadvantage because you're not you're not able to get out there and compete enough not to mention your winners
1: yeah Yeah, as as you're speaking you know what as i'm reading this question again and i'm looking at it i mean the way i asked it you i would even i would be like okay a good rider versus a great rider and a great rider is the one that enters the ring and they win and they go on and they're you know level after level but as you're describing all of that even you know discussing like the horsemanship and the type of horse they're riding i don't know i kind of have a whole different viewpoint to my question which you know those that work really hard and maybe not aren't necessarily horsed up the way they would like to or that they don't necessarily have the financial backing that they would like but try their best work their hardest you know like those are still the great riders would you say absolutely yeah
0: totally that's and awesome it it doesn't winning lots of ribbons does not mean you're a great rider right at all and it goes a little bit back to the goals um do you have reasonable goals and can you take pleasure and excitement over the fact that today you finally rode the perfect 20 meter circle or you finally got that clean flying change or you were able to sit the trot for 15 minutes
1: mm. <laughs>
0: without <laughs> dying, you know, uh, yeah. that those are huge successes Yeah, right there. Or maybe you went to your show in the last show, you got a 52% and this one you got a 54%. You were still dead last, but it was better. Right. Fantastic. Breakouts yeah. of champagne. <laughs>
1: So in that frame of mind, then, do you think that enough young riders and their support systems understand this, quote unquote, whole picture? Some do. Okay.
0: Um, Some parents are, let me tell you, the winter program that I do, I've had is, you know, from 12 to 16 kids. I hardly ever have a problem with a kid. (laughs) I have had a few problems with the parents. Right. Um, and I think we see that in all sports. I mean, we read about it all the time. At least I haven't had anybody come to fisticuffs and knock anybody else out, but um, uh, are the parents focused too much on competition? Are the parent, are the trainers focused? You know, I'm not a full-time trainer to anybody anymore. Right. I'm just, you know, filling in here and there Um, are the trainers too focused on the competition are the trainers wanting them to get a better horse so the trainer can have something nice to train Hmm. Uh, are the trainers willing to uh, are the trainers do the trainers truly know what the kids want to do i mean not all kids want to go and be big time riders some of them just want to enjoy their horse. Some of them wanna be, you know, win regionals at training level. And that's that's gonna be a few years down the road, perhaps. Yeah. Um it's it's just such an amazing. I mean, the and I'm just in awe of horses. The oh. fact that they let us do to them what we do. Yeah. And I don't mean mean, I mean that we can get on their backs and drill. I mean, look at these wonderful school horses that go around that twenty meter circle around and around and around yeah. and around. And they stay patient. They're such amazing animals. And are we appreciating them? And are we you know very often I had a conversation just this week. Um I had kids call me or parents call me, you know, about the the, the riders having difficulty with the horse and and the the horses probably not suitable for whatever reason physically mentally for the rider and the rider doesn't want to give up well is the horse enjoying the work Mm -hmm. is are you being held back is there a better situation for that horse I mean let's face it not every horse wants to be a dressage horse yeah some of them would much rather jump some of them would much rather be trail horses some of them love to go cross country (laughs) um And I think we have a responsibility to find the right place for the horse. And that's part of, of being a total horseman, not just being focused on, I'm going to make this horse do it. I'm, this horse has got to help me be successful, but are you horseman enough to understand where that horse is coming from? How did I get off on that tangent? No, well,
1: Well, along that line, I completely agree with you and the, and just a a slightly different side to it is you may have a completely, you know, meant to be a dressage horse horse with you, but perhaps that horse's personality does not mix with the riders. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I find that fascinating because I work on a lot of horses, you know, as a massage therapist, and yeah, you know, I'd be like, oh man, I can tell that the relationship here is just not meshing. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So definitely something else to keep in mind, but. Along the line of this goal setting, because you brought that up a couple of times, and the other hat that I wear, London, is a, is a life coach to equestrians. So I love talking goal setting, it's, um, and I, I love setting goals for myself. Now, it's a valuable teaching tool. How often does that lead to uncomfortable but constructive conversations? How do you help these, these riders, these kids manage their goal setting?
0: Well, as I said, I never did it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, you know, as as I said, the kids uh, fill out goal sheets, what I call my long-term goals for yep. horse and rider and, and short-term goals. And we talk about what has nothing to do with horses, smart goals. Um, what is it? Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, or realistic, timely. Yep. Um, which... You know, I try to get them to think about that. And I didn't make this up, but I saw it somewhere and I don't know who did it, but we talk about smarter goals. The E being effort, how much effort, how much are you willing to work at it? And the R being revision are your goals up to date. Um, So we have smarter goals, not just smart goals. Um, And I think you know i tell the kids these these goal sheets that i use you know talk a lot about not a lot but but ask all kinds of questions um you know um what do you, what are the limitations that or the difficulties that you you um might might have you know are you you know, restricted in money-wise, are you restricted time-wise? Um, uh, I can't think at the moment. Uh, they have to um, uh, talk about what can you do? What can you do to the best of your ability the first time you do it? Okay. That means, and this is, this is, I think, an important thing in your writing. I find that very often, um Riders, um, you know, well, let's take a leg yield, you know, moderately basic exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, And it takes a few times to get your best leg yield. Well, why aren't you getting it the first time? What are you thinking about before you do it the first time? I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying it's the best you can do. Hmm. And very often I find there's this, well, I try it and then I try it again and then I make it better and then I make it better. Well, before you do it the first time, are you thinking about what you need to do to make it the best it can be the first time? And I think, you know, you talked about the difference between good riders and great riders. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things. Are you before you do that walk to trot transition? are you just going walk to trot? Okay. That didn't quite work. He put his head up in the air or kicked out. I don't know, whatever. Or are you thinking about what your horse might do? You know, what do you normally need to do to make it your walk to trot transition the best it can be the first time. Hmm. And so you make it the best you can do it the first time. As I say all the time, the horse does not know right from wrong. Right. The horse only knows what he practices, Aww. and so what, what. Everything you do is confirming a habit, right? A good one or a bad one. <laughs> yes. Um. So that's part sure. of. I mean, that goes into goals. Um. One of my favorite questions on the goal sheet is, "What have you worked on all year that you should have fixed by now?" Uh Now that's that's not one necessarily sitting the trot perfectly. That's something that takes time. Right. But my trainer is always telling me that my left heel is up too much or I bend too much in my left shoulder in or whatever things that you should have fixed by now, but because you're not focusing on it, you're not making it a goal every time you come into your ride you know, today hmm. in my ride, I'm going to work position-wide. I'm going to work on my right hand that gets, that I need to make sure my thumb is up and my wrist is relaxed or whatever. And I'm going to make sure that my horse is in front of the leg. I'm never going to let him get dull. And wow. then at the end of your ride, you can say, like my hand got better. Uh, Twice he got behind my leg a little too much and I need to be better at that. Wow. So you've got your long-term goals, but you better, you know, every time to me, every time you're in the horse's space, Mm. meaning you're close to him, there should be a reason for it. And every time you get on, there should be a goal of your ride. And that goal could be, I'm going for a trail ride for a relaxation. And if you've thought about it in advance, then when you get back, you go, well, that was really nice. And he was really relaxed or, He was a raving maniac. I better make sure I go with somebody else next time to make it better. Yes. So I think it's the little short-term goals. And I think that's probably what I had. I didn't have the big long-term goals. I didn't, I just rode. But I did have the the short-term goals. Today, I'm going to fix this. Wow.
1: Gosh, if I were still riding... I would be absolutely running with this idea because I don't ever remember anybody, any of my coaches presenting this idea to me. And I'm, I've got a bunch of my clients or friends who still ride or are riding and and they're running through my brain. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if they think this way every time they get on the horse. And I don't know if they Mm -hmm. do. It's interesting. Huh. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for that one. That is for sure. I'm going to go around and ask a bunch of people now (laughs) about their goals. Okay. So you've been to two Olympics as a competitor and you've competed around the world. Now your days are spent making sure the next generation of riders are getting the framework to build their own success stories on. I'm not asking which of these has been more rewarding or memorable for you, but can you define what each of them has
0: brought to your life and how you frame it? Okay. First of all, just to be clear, I have not been to two Olympics. I've been on two Olympic teams. Okay. And you're undoubtedly too young and like <laughs> most of the people listening, in 1980. Russia invaded Afghanistan and the Olympics were boycotted because the Olympics were in Moscow by most countries. Gotcha. Uh, So we had an, I was officially an Olympian and we had an alternate Olympics in England, which had all the competition that we would have had, had we gone to the Olympics. So anyway, the, (laughs) the interesting thing about that, I was still living in Maine and i was nationally moderately successful i was not certainly well known nationally and nobody in the state of maine paid any attention to me (laughs) um but I i was on the olympic team i went to the olympics i mean i went to the alternate olympics and i came back and i was an expert i didn't think i was an expert But all of a sudden I was being asked to do more clinics and I was being interviewed and writing articles or asked to write articles. Not that I, when I went over to Europe that I learned, yeah, I learned some, absolutely. I mean, it brought, it made me a better rider without question, Um, but not that much. So by being in the Olympics, it gives me a reputation, right or wrong, that I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's something we all have to be careful about. You know, if you make it, and, and nowadays, if you make an Olympic team, you're a lot better than I was back then. It's it's much, much more competitive, Um, much, much better horses, ex- training, et cetera. But um, just the fact that somebody's been to the Olympics, Definitely doesn't mean they're a good teacher. Definitely doesn't mean they know everything. Um, they may have just been lucky, like I was, and had the right horse at the right time. Um, so the Olympics were fun. I have to say, the night before, I was nervous. I didn't sleep very well. But the moment I got on my horse and started riding, I could have been in East Podunk, Minnesota. Um, you know, we're lucky in the dressage world that we ride in the same sandbox. You know, a twenty by sixty sandbox. Um, we know the test we're doing, etc. So, um, it was a great experience. All of my international competing was a, was a terrific experience with their ups and downs, um, and. But I think um, what I'm doing now is much, much more rewarding. Um, Now, let's see, 1991 was my last international competition. That was a couple of two or three decades ago. Yeah. Um, And I have wonderful memories of it, mostly of the horses that I had. But um, what gets me up in the morning now, I mean, what gets me up really is what I'm doing now, uh, because they, in, in many ways, what I did before was rather selfish. It was all about me. And um, now it's not about me at all. It's mm-hmm. I'm I'm having a blast um, sharing knowledge, trying to give and I think the biggest part is trying to give opportunities to those that really deserve it and want it. And I think we've been pretty successful. And I just, I say, I wanted to say we, because I get all the credit for dressage for kids, but there are those that help out that, um, you know, I can't, I'm not doing it alone by any means. I mean, there's lots of people that are that are really helping out. So I wanna make sure that that's, that's clear. Wow. And this is something that I hope I'll be doing for a long time because it gets me up in the morning.
1: Oh, well, I certainly hope you will be too. Those are very, very fortunate um, youngsters, the, the the kids of all ages that are getting into your programs. And, and I just love, I mean, this is this thing that I love about this podcast when I I'm fortunate enough to have people like yourself, come on and spend time with me. I've said this before, it feels like a masterclass. Every time I get to sit and listen to you, your wisdom in this case, it's just very inspiring. And I am extremely thankful that you have been able to be here with me today. Um, to, to ask one last question, Lendon, please finish this thought for me. The absolute best part about being Lendon Grey is?
0: Um. I should have thought more about this, but I think it's, it's having had the opportunities, as I was saying, to become well-known enough to be able to do what I'm doing now, to be able to be in a situation where I meet all these wonderful kids and adults and encourage, I mean, Versage was my life it gave me a very good life and I hope that I'm able to have a, make an opportunity for others to feel the same way about it. Wow. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm totally inspired. And like I said, I don't even have a horse to throw my leg over. (laughs) 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 Oh my goodness. I am. Where can, like, I know I've got listeners all over the place. If there's anybody interested in reaching out to you for, perhaps entering your program or whatever, um, where can people find you?
0: Well, uh, dressageforkids.org website tells us all about the program. Uh, we, uh, have a moderately active Facebook and Instagram pages. Okay. And, um, I have a well-known email address, which is graydressage at Gmail.
1: Okay. Um, we can put all of that information in our show notes for people too. Okay. Yeah. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. All right, Lyndon. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. Well, thank you, Tracy. It's been fun. So there you have it. I have some great interviews lined up for future episodes and we'll be covering some pretty interesting topics. As always, with the intent to open and engage the horse world on a wide variety of issues. So until next time, keep your eyes forward and continue to hit your stride. To stay current with hitting your stride, subscribe on my website or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here today, make sure you share and leave a comment to help guide future episodes and widen the audience. And be sure to check out social media to keep up to date with Equestrian Elements Life Coaching.